Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Citico, and I'm with Dave Haslam, DJ, writer, social historian, sometime acerbic tweeter, though less so these days, I think. <laughs> um, after a number of excellent books about the city, nightlife in the 70s, He's now written one about himself, the rather wonderfully entitled Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, which indeed they did, and we'll probably get to why and how and what they did and what they had for breakfast, as we've just been running through afterwards. Um, there are always a few issues, uh, as being a writer or journalist interviewing other writers, um, I have a nightmare that has stayed with me since I started writing for fanzines when I was about 15, uh, which you might actually remember. There was an episode of The Tube uh, when Paul Morley was on representing the art of noise, um, and Jules Holland was asking his usual friendly questions, and Paul sat there basically going, well, you didn't really want to ask a question like that, did you? Because that's a yes-no question. And that will actually only... <laughs> and for about... It stays in my memory as about 15 minutes of him just tearing poor Jules to part, apart. So there's always that risk, but anyway. I'm no, sure, I'll I'm be, sure I'll be gentle because I know what it can be like. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dave, is this uh, an autobiography or a memoir? Um, well, I don't know what the difference between an autobiography and a memoir is, actually, because I started by calling it a memoir, um, but it kind of sounds... Um, it, I mean, it sounds even more pretentious than the book is by calling it a memoir. So I've started calling it an autobiography. Um, so I don't know what the difference is. But it, yes, it's kind of, the, it's not exactly the story of my life, but it's more than just the story of my life in music. It's sort of scenes from your life. It's kind than... of, yeah, it's quite episodic. And, it, and uh, I mean, I, you know, uh, th it goes back to me being a teenager. It also includes my a quite tragic love life in the 1980s. Um, and uh, it also talks about what you could kind of call a midlife crisis um, in more recent years. So it covers more than, um, you know, staying up late with bears or hanging out with the stone roses. Yeah, there is some of that in there. There is, there is some <laughs> there of that. There has to be. I suppose you can't <laughs> avoid that, can you? Um, why did you decide to write it? Well, because I've done four books of... Uh, what you called social history uh, in in the intro, and although I'm in, I have an emotional investment in all of those four books. You know, none of them were kind of written from a very objective historian point of view. They weren't overly academic, but um, they were all things that I was kind of in, yeah involved with, and uh, not necessarily as a participant, but I was emotionally involved and I was passionate about the subject. But um, I kind of felt maybe now. I, I could move uh, a bit closer to the centre stage. Um, although even in this book, I'm not really centre stage. I'm kind of one of a number of characters who, uh, are, you know, appear in the book, people who've inspired me, people I've encountered. You know, so the book isn't really just about me. It's more about me paying homage to people who've inspired me. You know, that's uh, people who've inspired me positively, you know, like... Uh, John Peel, Tony Wilson, Nile Rogers, Marky e. Smith, those kind of people, but also a few encounters with a few people that was were less positive, like the you know the man who pulled a gun in my on the hacienda. Which again, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. I mean, it, the book sort of moves through. I guess, sort of three significant stages. There's you as a fan of music, then there's you as a DJ, there's you as a sort of interviewer and speaker, um, and then there's the sort of this end bit after your midlife, midlife crisis. What, what I'm quite interested in is, is um, are you aware, were you aware of that progress beforehand or, or did writing the memoir, writing the autobiography, did it bring some things home to you about, about your life and how it had changed and 
Yeah, I think you're, you're right. I mean, that, there is three stages. I mean, I think of it as a kind of before the Hacienda got big stage, which includes, as you say, me being a fan. And then me just being involved on a, a very uh, spontaneous, unambitious little level, you know, putting on bands and being involved in the scene. Because in that period in the early 1980s, um, it wasn't, obviously, the, Manchester was known for its music, but it was still a very small scene. I think I say somewhere in the book, you know, that the, the kind of people who would go to the Hacienda or buy fanzines or queue up and see the first Smiths gigs, they were in a tiny minority in Manchester, you know. It wasn't a mainstream thing, it was an underground thing. But then, yeah, then in the late 80s, it all went overground and suddenly there were coaches full of people from all parts of the country coming to the Hacienda and, and there were German film crews and Japanese journalists. And, and so, yeah, the middle part of the book is that bit, which is the bit that I kind of, peop, people, I suppose know about already or, the, or at least think they know about already you know the one the, the the story of the hacienda as told by peter hook or in the film 24-hour party people so that's the kind of already documented middle section of the book so my challenge there was to kind of write about it in a refreshing point of view which was really i decided i'd just write it from my point of view you know i didn't and actually i didn't need to tell the history which was quite good you know, I, I know that people would know who the Stone Roses are and who Tony, etc. And then, yeah, and then I think, um, and then there's the kind of aftermath of the Hacienda, you know, the Hacienda closing in 97. Um, and, yeah, it's, there's a kind of what happens next, both to me and to the culture that I was a part of. Um, and, uh, you know, and in that third section... Um, you know, trying to kind of meet head on all those issues to do with, say, nostalgia, for example, and and you know, what do you, what do you do once you and and your scene and your friends and Manchester have had such a great moment? What do we do next? Yeah, I want to come back to that because I think there is a there's some really interesting questions around. Um, I guess it's, I don't know hagiography is the right word, but um, the way the hacienda is now perceived, um, and I guess. Uh, we don't compare to Liverpool in terms of our tourist industry around it, but but there is that sort of feeling, and, and whether Manchester is now sort of in aspic because of that, and, mm. and which possibly does a little bit of a disservice to all the scenes that have generated since. Which which is a uh, uh, let's let's go back um, to the beginning because you sort of start in your teen years, yeah, um, and you start with as, as you as you call it a plastic bag full of cassettes and a heart full of dreams, which I, which I reread about four times and thought, is that brilliant or is that? No, no, I actually quite like that. So was, uh, in what, did you think it was a bit cheesy? Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was a bit, yeah, I was thinking it's a bit cheesy. I could sort of almost imagine you sitting there writing that thinking, I've got a plastic bag full of, what else could I have at that, po that, yeah. that point? But, but I think, it was I think all it, I had. But I mean, actually, but then I thought about it and then I thought, sorry, this is getting really sad. Then I thought about it as, as a sum, summary of how you feel as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old or 16-year-old mm. about music and how important music is to you in your life and where you think you might go with it. Um, I, I think that's absolutely right because that's I, I you know I, I'm four or five years younger than you, but one of the lovely things about this this book was uh, I know most of those bands and I was part of that fanzine culture more as an observer than a contributor. But a few years later, as a contributor, so when you mention Ut and when you mention uh, particularly the shock-headed Peter's I Blood Brother B, which was a huge, and I'd got to meet B, the subject of that many times over the years, um, which was a I love that song so yeah. much. And so those sort of bands that you have the rest of, and interestingly, the 1985 Cabaret Voltaire 
um, gig at the Hacienda, which you opened with, was my first uh, event at the Hacienda, <laughs> being a Sheffield boy and following the cabs around. So um, that no, but, sort of uh, thing To be honest, if I could just jump, that was one of the things that I wanted in the book. I wanted people to recognise themselves and their... Uh, experiences and their passions. You know, I didn't, I, I, I've never felt like I I was uh, a particularly uh, uh, gifted or extraordinary person. I mean, that was never how I felt about myself. I always felt like I was part of um, a collective effort, which is now part of a collective history. And so I wanted the book to to read like that. So, you know, I do go out of my way to mention things you know, some of them were, were were big things, like talking about stone roses at Spike Island, but also some of them were those smaller little whatever contributories off the tributaries off the mainstream. You know, where where uh, you know the, uh, the shock headed Peter single or you know the dub sex flexi disc, because actually there's something quite endearing about those small scenes. And when I was writing the, those early chapters, the two things that struck me was one it was lovely to have a dialogue with the adolescent me um and secondly it was great to be able to celebrate the smaller scenes that aren't celebrated in the big histories because they are where everything starts um, and they are the things that i still feel most passionate about you know and i'm still the kind of person that will you know go to those little venues and you know see the see the bands as they begin you know and that was that goes back to my yeah to those experiences in my early years yeah dub sex are one of the those bands that should have been huge and never <laughs> were for reasons that i don't and if if you haven't listeners heard heard dub sex go to walk don't run because you're probably over 40 um to uh youtube and check out the underneath which is still an astonishing single um uh, unfortunately not available on cd not available through spotify yet but it's something that as they've reformed they should be sorting out anyway um birmingham um growing up uh, you get the sense that music was the most important thing in in your life at, at the at that time is yeah. that sort of broadly true what were the bands that were inspiring you and and um what were you listening to at that time well, well i mean yeah i mean uh, I, I left birmingham in 1980 so i was 18 at that point came up here to university um and i'd already absorbed so much music you know i kind of came uh, already to the city as a music obsessive i mean that's one of the reasons i came to manchester or probably the primary reason was because by that time i'd you know, I'd been totally captivated by Joy Division and Factory Records and all of that through, you know, my love of music. But again, you know, in, in I saw Joy Division three times and um, I, I saw what turned out to be their final ever gig. And, and actually I saw a gig that they played just after the first album had come out, which now quite rightly is considered one of the great debut albums of all time. And they were supporting Dexy's Midnight Runners. Which um, now, when you think about it, is a weird combination. Which is a great, uh, a weird combination, but an amazing. I mean, they would. They were, I mean, I was actually a Dexys fan, um, and I. But I'd heard it's just the conversations backstage. I'd be interested. I know. It, it, I mean that. It, you know, you you. you that I'm kind of slightly jumping to one side, but you know, when in our received history of Manchester, we talk about the Sex Pistols playing at the Lesser Free Trade Hall and and everything started then and everything sprang from that. And I'm not denying that that wasn't important, but I think when you're a music fan and you're music obsessive and you've been involved in the music underground, 
You actually see versions of that kind of event all the time. You know, t- t- like you say, Texas Midnight Runners in- and Joy Division in what was really a mod club um, two, two or three weeks after Unknown Pleasures had come out. That's, that, you know, there's, there's, somebody could write a book about that, you know. I mean, but nobody was around to document it, you know. And there wasn't a Tony Wilson-type character there to kind of give it any shape or any narrative or any mythology. So anyway, yeah, so I was, so I was, I mean, in the 70s, obviously as, as a teenager, I didn't feel, I mean, I was a football fan, I was a West Brom fan, still am, for my sins. Um, but apart from football and music, you know, we didn't have the distractions and <clears throat> that we have, that kids today have. And although I know that kids today are as passionate about music, back then it was almost kind of, it was our way into the world i kind of think of music then a bit like the internet now in the sense that someone like me would go and see blondie you know age 16 which i did and and you know um and through seeing blondie and debbie harry becoming fascinated with what their world was about and and actually it was through them that i discovered the whole cbgb's new york scene and then i kind of tracked back to the Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, and actually that kind of information and that kind, those kind of alternative histories weren't really readily available. So you had to go out and search for them. You know, you'd hear a rumour that David Lynch has made a film called Eraserhead and you must see it, you know, which was just a rumour and you had no way of kind of verifying it or seeing a teaser on YouTube or, uh, you know, downloading it off net, Netflix. You'd literally just have to hang around art cinemas until it turned up and um so it was so music was kind of could open up all those worlds and it was something that I, I really latched on to and and obviously I was lucky in that I was 15 in 1977 when really when the effects of punk were that it blew open the doors to a load of bands who made music a lot of it not very punky but just music that was in a way given a space to happen. Uh, and in Birmingham, that was bands like The Prefects, The Au Pairs, UB40, Steel Pulse, Texas Midnight Runners. I mean, when you think about it, that's a, that's a great little generation of bands. But, you and, know, and a huge variety as well. And when a huge variety. Duran Duran in there as and well. And Duran Duran, of course. You know, and actually now, you know, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've done a few events where I've talked about why Manchester has such a strong tradition of music stronger than any other city and in a lot of ways it's because the quality of the acts is amazing but uh, there's an, the other reasons is because there were people like Paul Morley and Tony Wilson and John Savage and and and, and there was a, a record label like Factory Records and other cities didn't have those kind of characters and that kind of flagship label and 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 then the Hacienda you know and so it was the it was the the characters who were around and their ambition and their vision and their ability to shape it all, which really made the difference. I think um, it was a really interesting time as well. I think again, said being a few years younger than you, but um, getting into music during a similar period, that there is a perception from thirty years on that there was punk and there was sort of new romantic, and then nothing really happened until Acid House came along. Uh, but the reality during that late 70s, early 80s period, the post-punk period, but also you're getting electro starting to come over yeah. from the States as well. So you're starting to hear 
um, you know, I probably heard my first electro as a result of being a Cabaret Voltaire yeah. fanatic um, in 82, I think, yeah. early 83, and then, and then backshifting into very early versions of what would become hip-hop as a result of some yeah. of that stuff. Um, but also that New York scene, I, I can remember going through listening to Blondie, which got me into CBGBs, which then I found out that Debbie Harry had met this, hung out with this author called William Burroughs, yep. and would, they were recorded interviews with Burroughs, and then you'd get into the Swans and all those sort of other, and Richard Hell and various others as well. Uh, you it, see, there was I a think... sense of the, all these things happening out of punk in so mm. many different directions. It was both a, a wonderful musical education, but also uh, just a brilliant time for the amount of different And it was just, a, it was a great education full stop you know and it I mean in the book I talk about how kind of excited I was to discover that there was this alternative culture and these alternative ways of thinking ultimately and you know not everybody um, I mean I can you know tell from talking to you that you know you and I share a, a similar kind of outlook to music in and and that it's about obsession and it's about being overwhelmed by it but it's also about being curious about it and and following it and trying to understand it and and being open to what it suggests um a lot of people aren't you know because other people have got other stuff to go so you you kind of like in my in the early part of the book I'm kind of when I said earlier about the dialogue with my adolescent self you know, I was thinking, thinking about what, trying to work out and never quite working out why, why was music so important. And, and um, I think uh, all I did know was that, yeah, I was very curious and very adventurous about music. And, and um, I think probably John Peel was probably the, you know, the, in, in, the biggest inspiration on, on that level for me in that particular period. There weren't a lot of alternatives at that time. No. It's just, uh, yeah, it was very serious. Um, when you came up to Manchester, you started started the fanzine. Started, were you already writing at that point, or was that sort of a start of writing? <laughs> and, and if so, how long did well, it take you to sort of find a voice and start to be happy with what you were doing? Oh, I'm still waiting to be happy with what I I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, good question. Um and good answer. So, um, well, I think like in the book, I'm really kind of honest, you know, and I think sometimes I've, I've read books by, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is a weird one, but I read a Frank Skinner, the comedian. He wrote his autobiography or memoir, whatever he decides to call it. And someone bought it me for Christmas and I read it. And he studied English at university like I did. And at one or two points in the book, his book, he says, oh, at this moment, I could quote the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, but I won't, because you'll, brag, think, you'll think I'm being pretentious. Now, from my point of view, I'm like, if I'm going to write my book, I don't want to have to um, self-censor myself to worry about what the readers might think of me, you know? So when I'm writing about my teenage years or my twenties and other parts of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm as honest as I can, even though I know that on occasions then, and for anyone reading it now, I might come across as somebody who's like ultra bookish or a bit, um, a bit, even a bit arty. It doesn't really matter to me, but because that's how I was, you know, and that's how I was growing up. And so I'm, um, I, and when I was growing up, I think I wanted to be a writer, you know, and I think 
I mean, I loved music, but I didn't think of, I didn't ever really think, oh, I want to be a musician. Um, I, and obviously in the late 70s and even into the 80s, although DJs had a reputation on the Northern Soul scene and the reggae scene, for example, in my kind of little world, DJing wasn't really a thing like it, it became at the end of the 80s. So, um, and, you know, I used to read a lot and, uh, and you know, and I still do. So uh, starting a fanzine enabled me to follow my passion for music because the fanzine was mostly about music champion things I liked, write about all those little those underground bands, put out Dub Sex's first record as a flexi, etc. But also it gave me a chance to write about books, but it ultimately just gave me a chance to write. And the weird thing was that in 1983, when I started the fanzine, I had no idea how you could be a writer. I didn't even know how I could have written for, you know, the music press. I had Manchester seemed a lot less connected and it was a lot less connected to the rest of the world uh, uh, and and to London and to everything which get in one way it gave it a real strength in that it it had its own little ecosystem and it, it was things that were happening I mean I've talked to Stephen Morris from Joy Division New Order about this and he said you know it was great being able to be in a band and not have the kind of attention of the world upon your upon your activities. And that was the case even with Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses and James and all those bands. They, they in their early years, were totally off the radar. And the reason for that was they were in Manchester. <laughs> and Manchester was a lot more than 200 miles away from London at that time. And as a, as a, a writer... I had no idea really how... I mean, Paul Morley had been a writer, but he'd moved to London, really. John Savage had moved moved to London. So it seemed like that's what you had to do. Or you just did a fanzine, which I did, which you sold in, you know, the alternative bookshop, Grassroots, you know, the alternative little vegetarian cafe, The Eighth Day, the alternative cinema... The, and, and you hung out, hung out in uh, vet, uh, clubs like Rafters and the Hacienda and you sold them to people in the queue. And that, to me, was how I created an audience. But that was all I wanted to do. I didn't actually, I didn't harbour a desire to be in a bigger world or a more successful world. I was just doing what I wanted to do at that time. And do you think it was through that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting thinking about it. By running that fanzine, obviously you start talking to people on the scene, but actually the relationships you talk about in the book with Morrissey particularly, but also with New Order, they're not particularly relationships of you as the supplicant interviewer, um, you know, desperate to approach a star, because they weren't stars most of the time when you knew them. I suppose New Order were were sort of well-known, were indie royalty, I guess, at the time. Um, But actually the relationship is... is, uh, a closer one and probably a, you know, sometimes slightly more difficult one as well. Was that, do you think, because you were seen as part of the scene here and you were actually just there on a day-to-day basis more than arriving up from London to do an interview, buggering off again? And Yeah, I think so, yeah, I think so. And also because I knew, you know, we, had, we always had friends in common. So, you know, when it was, like you say, Morrissey or, or New Order or any of those people, um it yeah we had friends in common we kind of felt like we were part of the same world uh yeah so maybe um they approached me in a different way than they might 
as you say, from a kind of journalist who just turns up and does the story and, and then leaves. Um, and I mean, I think that I, actually also I, I, I for some reason, uh, I, I never, I was never in awe of them as much as, I mean, on the surface, I was never as in awe of them as I was deep down. <laughs> there was a, luckily, I was able to. Um, there was something about me that enabled me just to. I was fearless, really, and I was writing about. I was thinking about this, and I wrote write about it in the book. You know, there were a lot of times when I'm writing about me in my twenties where I almost feel like I should. I'd like to kind of reach back and pat myself on the head and say. Do you know what? It was amazing that you just were knocking on those doors and 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 doing what you wanted to do and getting involved and participating and caring as much about everything that you did. Um, and you know, and and by twenty four, you know, I was doing two nights a week at the Hacienda and writing in the NME, and I had my fanzine and I was putting out flexi discs. And I was hanging out with my friend Nathan, who just started managing Happy Mondays. And I was only 24, and I'm like, wow, you know, for that kind of fearless energy, you know, it was, 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 must have been amazing. But as I say, at the time, it was just like, I'd get up every morning like a lot of my contemporaries and just think, what can I do today that is exciting and creative? And, and then I'd do it. And it helped to be in a city where there were things going on, yeah, I mean, and and also, you know, I think at that point there was also I was in a city where everyone understood on one level or other that we were all part of a bigger project. And I think one of the things that uh, changed in uh, over the years was that that sense maybe had been lost. As each band got a little bit more successful, it became more about them, you know, and you know, which I understand. But all, what my very strongest memories of 86, 87, 88, you know, the years that kind of found the, laid the foundation for what are now called the glory years or the Manchester years. Um, in that period, uh, there was people, it was a collective effort. And, you know, on every level. So the band would, a band going on tour would give another band a support slot, People were very open to being written about in fanzines. They'd take DJs on tour. Everything was very open. You know, they'd share rehearsal space. Um, if anyone had any downtime in the studio, another band would go in. There were quite a few little local labels. And and so I think that was, uh, that that sense of a collective effort, I think, was was something that was really important because without that, being able to sustain it, you know, the bands on their own um, wouldn't have been able to make it because being in Manchester was too much of a, a disadvantage. And I guess, and I guess um, sort of a slightly um, contrary to the way that you might think, it was the strength of Manchester being a small scene at that time where everybody did know each other and, and therefore the responsibility was to support each other. That's police going outside. And that's just, um, not coming to arrest us, I, I hope. I mean, I think that that's really interesting in the tales of obviously that progress of the Haas from 83, 84 onwards where, I mean, as I said, I, I first went in 85. Um, it was a gig venue then and we, we'd come over from Sheffield to see, to see, giggles, to see gigs at that point. Um, that progress from that point to 87, 88 
where obviously you've got a change in Paul Cons and Paul Mason coming in mm. to manage, but it becomes very much a DJ culture thing and becomes much bigger than Manchester and that, that possibly that separation from the idea that there were only a few hundred of you here to it's it's now being seen on on the world scene mm. how much were you aware of that change as very much part of what was going on was there almost one day where you woke up and went goodness me Manchester is now globally well known for this, <laughs> well uh, no there was the center of everything and um, no, I mean, there wasn't really a year zero when everything changed and, you know, um, people sold all their old records and and bought new records and new clothes and all that, you know. I mean, again, in the, in the book, I think, I don't, I don't really he- meet many mythologies head on in the book, but there's just one or two things where I'm like, actually, that is not how I remember it. And that notion that in 1988, the city changed in the period of like a week, you know, when Bez or somebody, you know, discovered ecstasy and started dancing in a weird way. And a guy called Gerald put a record out called Voodoo Ray. And suddenly, yeah, that we'd, what we'd all been waiting for since, you know, the Buzzcocks had signed to a major label in 1978, uh, suddenly we got, but it wasn't like that. The evolution was the interesting thing and how, you know, somebody like me who was, you know, pretty, I wasn't, I was an alternative type indie kid, but, you know, like you, I had the kind of interest in what was called industrial music and electro and hip hop. But how did that, that, that person, a fanzine guy, end up being a DJ, you know, playing what ended up being, you know, a club which formed the blueprint of the whole rave revolution. But in the book, I kind of try and talk about that evolution and it and it's it was for me it was literally a matter of each week just trying to make the next weekend's uh nights at the hacienda even better so the idea that you could take a step back tony was the only one really who had the uh ambition and the vision to step back he was the only one who i think thought that what we were doing could be significant. I mean, and he could be a kind of Malcolm McLaren figure, and and that you know, and that, and and it could be as big as punk. He was the only one because, for lots of reasons, because he was the only one who wanted that in a way. Whereas we just wanted to just have a bit of fun, but also we were so you know on the front line. You know, I, I spent hours in record stores looking for the best records and listening to the radio and. And, and just hanging out and, yeah, trying to make... So we had a kind of week-by-week week type attitude. So there was never a moment, really. It, it wasn't until, I, th- I think, in June or July of 1990, at which point I'd been there for four years. The scene had all been, un- had been at overground kind of for about 18 months. And we were on a Hacienda DJ tour of America, and Graham Park, one of the other DJs at the house, and I was sat in the back of a limousine being driven from Detroit airport to a hotel to play that night in Detroit with Derek May, Kevin Saunderson at a Depeche Mode after party. And at that moment, we both just looked at each other and were like, how did this happen? And I I still don't really know the answer to that, but that was the moment when it kind of dawned on us that actually it was uh, something had happened and that the the world was interested and that we had a part to 
playing it and that there were going to be queues of people outside the club waiting to hear us play our, play our records. And like I say, I still don't quite know how that happened, but that was the first time, quite belatedly, that I realised that we'd achieved something. Yeah, I wonder if Kevin and Derek were feeling the same thing. Actually, yeah, um, Derek, I think, was very surprised when suddenly little tracks that he'd done in his bedroom became globally famous. Yeah, he, <laughs> just yeah. continued churning stuff out, and whether it whether it worked or not. Uh, yeah, was, and, was and to just... me, it was. Um, I mean, I know that you're in, you're interested in the whole Manchester Detroit relationship, but you know the idea that for me, although you know i'd seen all those bands you know going back to you know texas joy division new order etc the smiths i uh, i think in june 1990 at the point where we'd gone to america just a month before i dj'd at spike island to 20,000 people so despite all that i was still amazed that people in detroit which to me you know was obviously having had motown and mc5 and and then you know the Derek may and kevin and all those other techno innovators. I was like, it's almost like taking coals to Newcastle. It's like, we are now in a really properly major music city. and But actually we can stand up and say, we're from Manchester and be taken as seriously as people in Detroit. And we were now a music city. One of the things that I think comes through really well in the book actually is how... Again, we'll look back at that history and go, yeah, whether there was a, a, a day that changed or whatever is, is the cliche and the, and the perception of it and, and, and how suddenly it became global. Um, but actually, how much of that was a result of little tactical decisions that were taken for entirely different reasons? You know, mm. the, the, the shift that you talk about quite a lot in, in the Hacienda from live bands to DJs was about saving money as yep. much as it was it anything was. else, if, if, that was, if that was the major reason. You, you talk about, you know, actually um, somebody coming up to you and saying, what is this acid house you're playing? And actually never having heard the term before, it was just electro-type records that you were hearing coming, coming over. Um, do you think that sort of retrospective uh, rewriting of history to package it up and put it in a, in a much more simple and less messy form. Do you think that do you think that's dangerous or do you think, uh, you know, well, we, we not, just have to cope with it? It's not dangerous. I, mean, I mean, it's not dangerous, but it's, it's kind of how people like their history to be simplified and defined and, um, and uh, uh, yes, and uh, 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 as you picked up from the book, it wasn't really like that i mean i can remember actually cringing i mean it wasn't so much maybe the label acid house but yeah you're right i mean i was playing acid house before i knew it was called acid house which is kind of quite weird to think of now but then there were people would try and find other ways of talking about it you know and it was like i remember you know id would write about the baggy revolution and it always used to make me cringe because it because it was so much a simplification of what was going on um, and although I understand the word Manchester had a had a, a simplicity and a resonance about it, and it was quite funny and and it worked. At the same time, it did become quite limiting, and it become actually become actually I think it ended up meaning something different to how I'd always imagined it would be, you know. And I, especially from our perspective now, the idea of Manchester it seems actually quite limited and and kind of boys in a band and quite laddish and a bit predictable which was kind of almost like the opposite of what Manchester was it was unpredictable limitless 
and it was everything. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't boys in a band particularly. It was everything, and so that that uh, it 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 it's just what happens. You just, I guess, have to live with it. And, um, you know, so again, one of my points for me about writing the book was just to complicate things in a way, you know, just to, to try and point out a slightly different way of viewing some of these things, which we think we know. And and how do you think that legacy of the Hacienda is is used now? I mean, is it, is it we've just seen... I think multiple millions are going in once more to Liverpool and to the cavern, which isn't even the real cavern mm. um, culture. We would all like Eric's back if we're from a particular generation. Um, but again, Beatles tourism uh, is being boosted again. We don't quite have that. Uh, would that be a good thing if we went well, down we are, that route? I, or, or, or I actually, actually do we, think, do we think too I, much? I about think it? we've we've gone beyond um, that hacienda thing. I think that. I think we did have a critical point, I think probably, I would say, 12 or 15 years ago at the beginning of uh, the 21st century when the Hacienda had been closed for three or four years and actually its glory days, you know, had been over 15 years and um, and I think the, the gen- there was a, a activity in the city, not just young the younger generation but very much younger generation but also other people who just thought that the amount of attention that the hacienda was being given after it had closed um and and was a distorting and and suffocating what was happening uh, in in contemporary music in manchester and they were right but i think that um we've kind of pushed on through that that's my that's how i see it and I think that actually we had a period of of Manchester bands having to distance themselves from the Hacienda, um, even to the point of being quite antagonistic about the whole Manchester years. You know, they're nothing to do with us. We hate them. You know, um, it's it's just old old men being nostalgists and you know move out of the way, Granddad. And that was great. I think that was good because that was exactly. That was actually more in the spirit of the Hacienda than the nostalgia was because it was about challenge and it was about new and it was about breaking through. And But I think we've kind of gone beyond that now and I actually think that the the scene now in Manchester, although I'm, I'm always a little bit reticent about being a man in, the, in, in, in my mid-50s, uh, trying to explain or analyse young people's culture, but I, I, I would um, obviously, apart from having the model of John Peel, who did that brilliantly in my mind. But I do think that now um, th- there's more great DJs. There's some amazing venues. I mean, Albert Hall is a, a better live venue and probably a better club venue than a, a, anywhere in the last twenty years, twenty-five years. It's an amazing place to see a band. And then the smaller venues, you know, Soup Kitchen, the, the the clubs, the venues that have been around for 25 years, like Night and Day, um, you know, Gorilla, the whole, well, the whole trough organisation, all, all the, and then you've got the Warehouse Project, you know, for the autumn season, um, which any other city in Europe would be amazed to have what we have now in Manchester. And, um, 
so for me, I mean, I've got my, my kids are both in their twenties now. They go out all the time and they go to great things and they, um, you know, they come home late <laughs> if at all. And I'm totally envious because I can see that the culture they have now is as, as, um, as fascinating and, and powerful as the culture that we have. Just because it's not getting the same attention means nothing. I, you know, I go back to what I was saying about the 80s. When Sonic Youth slept on my floor, it wasn't, it, it, it was, for me, that was a great, great evening. No one really cared. Nobody wrote about it. There wasn't a film crew there. It wasn't being streamed live on Facebook. It was me putting on a gig by Sonic Youth who, and them coming back to my place to sleep because it was cheaper than a hotel and for me that was everything and um it wasn't you know there was no and and that kind of thing is how ha happens now and as i say in the book it isn't only it isn't until years later that you realize these small little things that happened actually have cultural significance you know there were loads of other bands that slept on my floor as it happens <laughs> who people don't remember you know, and there were loads of gigs I put on that nobody went to. And there were loads of fanzines that I did that nobody bought. And, you know, but some, some in retrospect, have become significant. And I just think that what happens, that I think what happens now in Manchester, among people who are like me, like I was, into the underground creative scene, I think there's, there's uh, more now than ever. That would be a great place to leave it, but I have got a couple more questions as, as we move on because I think we're only in about 1984 at this point. Um, I think one of the really... I, I absolutely agree with what, what you're saying. I think one of the interesting things from having youngest children is 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 watching how they perceive music mm. um, and how they consume music. Um, and I think there's there's a huge amount of criticism of, of, of you know, Spotify. You can get any sort of track that you want apart from dub sex. Um, that, and, and isn't that a challenge? But the ability, and yes, I, I have a nostalgic, um, the loss of the album, I, I guess. I, yeah. I haven't, you know. um, but uh, being taken by a, a much younger friend of mine through SoundCloud and how SoundCloud works and at the end of last year getting absolutely obsessed with Little Peep and all, all of those guys coming yeah. out of New York that do sort of goth rap, which are two of my absolute obsessions over the last 30 odd years. Um, and just finding that culture where somebody like Little Peep, who I think died at about 24, has done literally hundreds of tracks. Some of them are rubbish, some of them are great, but you get that sense of that virtual community and that exchange and can work with yeah. really big pop stars. And, and that sort of thing, when you start talking to, to locals about how they're actually putting up their music, that, that they're not having to search for labels, they're not having to do this, do this other stuff and have that conversation around music and how mm. it's being consumed in a different way. Mm. I found taking my eldest to her first proper gig in Birmingham, in fact, a couple of weeks back. Um, and though people weren't selling fanzines on the line, they were selling mixtapes on the line. And, and I loved that. It was, it was, you know, great that they were coming up and you began to say, that, no, this stuff they've done themselves. It wasn't, you know, yep. up on the stage. And I love those resonances. And I think it's quite, I think it's, it's so easy, obviously, as you get older to start, everything was, everything was perfect at that time. Mm. But, um, do you find it a, a struggle or do you find it really easy to, to go out and try and keep that feeling of energy and, and whether you try and keep up to date or whatever? But Yeah, I mean, I don't consciously try and keep up to date. I mean, but I do uh, consciously look for things that, uh, you know, just as I did, you know, 40 years ago, things that are 
interesting and exciting and different. There's a part of me that is very easily bored by uh, mainstream light entertainment and and very skeptical about things that are generally sold to us as being, you know, an amazing new thing or, you know, and and very questioning when it comes to politics and culture and that's just how I am and um, uh, I mean I don't explain it in the book I just kind of describe it and how it evolves but it's always stayed with me and I'm still like that so um, you know I'm you know so that is kind of just that's just my mindset and my world that's what turns me on and so you know I'm it, it, it isn't a case of trying to necessarily keep up I mean one of the things you know talking about what the internet has brought to a, a music fan. I'm, I'm now hearing records for the first time that were made in the early 1980s. Like, the, uh, I mean, this isn't, a, it's not a new discovery of mine, but a few years ago, I started listening to a whole lot of Italo disco. Uh, Charlie, Spacer Woman is a great record. I never heard it at the time because how how would I you know if un, unless somebody behind the counter at Piccadilly Records had actually said to me we've imported this record from Italy and you would love it Dave I would never have heard it and that didn't happen so I never heard it so I'm now hearing music that was released at the beginning of my DJ career that if I'd heard it then I'd I'd have it had been in, it would have been in my selection box of records that I'd have taken with me to every gig since so so sometimes what I discover isn't new stuff but it's new to me and and I've just and I discover it through yeah the joys of the internet uh, final thing I guess is I mean you talk uh, for the last few chapters of the book about sort of midlife crisis moving to Paris for I a keep bit. calling it midlife you crisis. do keep calling it that you're it's a mid- a, that. let's call it a midlife opportunity okay <laughs> that's yeah um that's finding the good in everything, isn't it? Um, particularly also talking about giving away your record collection. So what did you think? What did you think? What did you think of those chapters? Uh, I thought they're really interesting. I mean, I didn't know that you know you'd be. I actually didn't know that you'd been over to Paris. And I think that there was an interesting one of obviously being in Paris at, around the time of the Bataclan and then coming back here and the. And I think there's some interesting resonances between the two. When we we as a company we're coming up to the anniversary now, um, we're dealing with. Uh, the aftermath of the bomb in Manchester, um, we read a lot of the stuff that had come out of the Bataclan. And one of the interesting things about this, which, which I was going to talk about, was the official Senate investigation in France in, into Bataclan and the aftermath, which has some horrific things in it. Um, uh, talking about the attitude of the police, I mean, particularly the CRS, which is the, the riot police, going to some of the restaurants, and because the owner and the staff were um, Algerian or um, otherwise North African, then being held at gunpoint, even though they'd just seen their wife, and you know those, those sort of things. Mm. Which, whatever there may be issues with our police, you can't imagine our police doing anyway. But one of the things that came over very strongly in those reports was. Uh, talking to the survivors groups, the importance that they went to the Eagles of Death Metal gig as fans of that band. And in terms of providing a survivor network, the fact that they had that common language was immensely important. Mm. And knowing through my daughter, a couple of her friends went to the Ariana gig, they are fans of Ariana, Ariana is very important in their lives, that the way of dealing with it through her music and the importance of music in those circumstances um, cannot be overstated. And I mean, and in a way, that's the big 
again, it wasn't really until I'd finished the book that I realised that that was one of the big themes, really, was the sustaining power of music in the lives of people, the lives of communities, the lives of cities. And in fact, even more than that, maybe even the redemptive power of music. And you look at, you know, Joy Division becoming a new order. You look at my own life and how, you know, music could sustain me. And and in that period of, around Paris, you know, music being something that I really held on to. And then you look at, the you know, the immense and horrific stuff around the Bataclan and the arena attack. But you realise how music sustained people, but also somehow pushed everyone into the, the the future and allowed people somehow to to conceive of what what could happen in the future and um and and, and I, so those final chapters were really important to me because i think i think it's you mentioned the word community i think it was i realized all those little scenes whether they were around a fanzine or a club or a little venue or a band it was about people creating their own little community where they were among like-minded people and music was often the glue that held everything together. And those communities were really important to people because we were, where either city you're living in, you're living in somewhere that is you know, alienating and a bit out of control. And, 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 but having those little venues or having that little focus for what you do and your tribe do that little scene is so important to people and um but sometimes that community just gets bigger and bigger so i kind of feel like really that's in in terms of where my book is and manchester music is how all the little communities in the early 80s that i talk about with such fondness then became the hacienda community which is now the is now owned by and and by the whole community, that it isn't about us and it isn't about what we were doing or what record I was playing or what, how, you know, what Tony said to me or what Graham parts. It belongs to the whole community. And just as back then it was something that energised our lives, it's now something that energises the whole Manchester community. And for me, that is just like the best thing, you know, the best thing. And... Um, you know, and it and it, it it just makes me feel very humble. I mean, it makes me feel a little proud that I was participating on some level, but really humble that all that all that those nights and all that music and all that all that stuff has actually added up to something, and it's added up to something which is like a reservoir of of pride and hope which the people of Manchester draw upon. And I think that's an excellent place to end it. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, so the memoir stroke autobiography stroke um, collection of memories, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, is out on the 24th of May, which should be, assuming the editing process goes well, the very day that you're listening to this, because you wouldn't be late, of course. Uh, so you can buy it in, use a bookshop, because bookshops are good things, and we should all support our local bookshops. Uh, if you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcast at citygoat.com. Next up, we are sort of talking about nightlife. We're talking about gin. We did that uh, podcast about beer a couple of uh, months ago. Now we're going to talk about gin, because every railway arch in the city now appears to have some sort of distillery going on. What is going on? Uh, Cottonmouth Manchester is available on all good podcast services. Please leave us a review if you like what you hear. Until next time, thank you.